Let's begin with prayer. Our Father God, we thank you for your grace to us. As believers that have come under the the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, we express our gratitude, we express our, our joy. More than that, Father, we express our worship of you for providing so rich a redemption so fully and so freely to all who would believe. And we have a special recognition of that grace this morning as we witness those being baptized. But it is a testimony of all who have come under that rich mercy of our God and the work of the Savior, Jesus Christ. That the old man has died, and by faith a new man has been risen up, a new person in Christ. And this is a work entirely of your hand in justifying sinners. This is the grace that we celebrate this morning. And as well, Father, we pray that your spirit will excite us to the reality of what it means to live in that mercy and that grace, even in this fallen world. We come before you as redeemed ones, but yet ones that continue to struggle with sin. This is a moment where we can confess and repent of that before you, to acknowledge our sin and our failures, but acknowledging with the knowledge that you are faithful to cleanse and to purify because of the work of your Son. We also acknowledge our need of you, Father, to nurture and to grow us in the likeness of your Son. We give thanks for the written word. We give thanks for the indwelling of the Spirit of your Son within us. And we ask now that we can be humbled before you, soft and pliable, so that we can receive from you, that we can learn from you, and that we can be molded more into the image of your Son than we've been in the past. Let this be an hour of your handiwork in our lives, sanctifying your church, arousing us to the reality of what we have in Christ, filling us with the joy of our redemption, and leading us to a path of worship and obedience before you. Grant this hour under your word to be profitable in your hands. Give me the ability to speak clearly and well on these things this morning. And we do so, we pray so, for the glory of our Savior and for the growth of your church. In Christ's name, amen. I want to direct your attention to what we often refer to as the Great Commission, Matthew 28. In honor of those and in honor of Christ that has saved those that are going to be baptized before us, it's appropriate that we look at this passage The young men that are going to be baptized this morning are of the age that I was baptized as a young believer. And honestly, I cannot remember much about that moment except I was extremely nervous. And these young men are nervous as well. They're going to get up before you and express their testimony of faith in Christ. And we can pray that the Lord would calm their their spirits so that the glory would be all of him. I don't know that the words that I said in my testimony when I was baptized were all that impactful. I was 11, 12 years old. What did I know? But the reality is that regardless of our age, if we've been captured by the grace of God, we're owned by him. We become his property. And there's a magnificent testimony, I believe, in what Jesus shared with his 12 apostles just before He ascended to the Father in heaven. 
So follow along with me in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The reality of these words are that these are the marching orders for the church. Christ gave these instructions to his apostles. And those apostles laid the foundation for the church, and the church has continued to carry on this mission even to this day. This morning we have the privilege of witnessing five young men that will share their testimonies with us, and they're going to demonstrate their profession of faith with Christ, their union with Christ, as they enter into the waters of baptism. And generally, when I give a message before this kind of an event, I want to explain some of the elements of baptism. This morning, I would like to give a charge to the five young men that are going to be giving their testimonies before us all, and it really is a charge for all of us as believers. And it comes from these words that Christ left his apostles, in reality, left his church before he assumed his throne in heaven once again. When a church witnesses this kind of baptismal profession, when done according to God's word, it is a sign of a healthy gospel environment where not only is the Holy Spirit active within the church, but he's active within the Christian homes that are represented here. And this activity, I want you to notice from our text, is about the making of disciples. It's about disciple making. And as we prepare to witness these professions, I'd like us to consider the instruction that Jesus Christ left his apostles just before he ascended to the Father in heaven. He had just completed redemption for his people on the cross. He paid the price in full by giving up his spirit and entering the grave. And he made new life possible through the power of his resurrection. He comes to the mountain with his disciples as he is about to return to the Father in heaven, and he leaves this final charge with those apostles just before he assumes the right hand of the Father on his throne. And he leaves here for us as a church a pattern of instruction that continues down through the ages until Christ comes, even to the end of the age, as Jesus says here in Matthew 28. This passage has been called by us the Great Commission. And it's perhaps great because of the one giving the commission. It is perhaps great because of the many souls that would be redeemed and made to be disciples or followers of Christ. It may also be the great commission because this is the mission of the church that has not changed down through the ages to the very present from the moment that Christ spoke these words to his apostles. Jesus declared these things to his chosen men who in turn gave these marching orders to the early church and they continue to be the words for the church today. They're our calling. It is the mission to preach the good news of Christ and we take that mission out of Genesis all the way through Revelation that we are to make disciples or followers of Christ. 
as the gospel is preached, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ causes his elect ones to be born again. He grants them the repentance and faith that effectually causes them to believe and be saved. The church is then commissioned further to teach these infant believers, these new believers, the joy of walking faithfully with Christ as his disciples. And the testimonies that we're going to hear in just a few moments are the product of that regeneration, the product of the work of the Spirit who has caused rebirth to occur. And that is so essential to every sinner because the reality is we are dead to God apart from this work. I think in truth, we are all stillborn spiritually from infancy. So it's important for us to witness these baptisms because this is a reminder to the church and to the families of this church that our work is not done simply because these young men have made a profession of faith. They must be established in their faith. Baptism then represents something very significant in the lives of these five young men as it should to all of us that are believers and have been baptized under that profession. Baptism is a testament. A testament is something that serves as a sign or evidence of a specific fact or event. And in this case, each of these guys are baptized They are giving in this act itself evidence of the gospel truths that they have come to trust in and under the Savior that they put their faith in. What I hope to do this morning from God's word is to show what baptism demonstrates. Beginning in verse 18 then, baptism is a demonstration of surrender. It is a demonstration of surrender. Jesus begins this commission given to his disciples by making clear all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. It's been given to the Son. What this tells the church, what it tells new believers who are being baptized, in fact, what it tells the whole world is that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all and that his people who have trusted in him have fully surrendered themselves to his authority in their lives. All authority belongs to Christ. And therefore, baptism is a declaration that I have now willingly and joyfully come under the authority of the Savior. This is hugely significant to the rest of the text. And it's significant to every fallen man and woman because this does not come natural to us to to surrender to anybody's authority but our own. We like to think we are autonomous. Apart from Christ, we celebrate that even though it is impossible for anybody to be truly autonomous. We want to be in control of self. When Jesus said that all authority is his, he purposefully includes the earth in identifying that authority as it is in heaven. He's seated on a throne in heaven to be sure, but he's making clear to us his authority extends well beyond heaven. Everything come under his authority. This is observed in the word all. You see that word all coming up throughout this great commission. Here it is all authority in Christ. This means he has unlimited power and rule over everything. 
It says in Proverbs, even the heart of the king is turned by Christ wherever he wishes it to go. That means that fallen man as well as the church, the wicked as well as the saved, the inanimate as well as the living, everything falls under his sovereign rule. Fallen man lives in rebellion to this authority and because of man's defiant history down through the ages, man assumes, I don't need Christ. I'm not living under God. I don't need him. Some turn to idols fashioning a God of their own. Others just reject God altogether and say there is no God. Yet it is under God's authority that man is permitted this season of defiance and rebellion. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that God has highly exalted his son, bestowing on him the name that is above all other names. That season is soon going to come to an end where man lives in rebellion. And the day will come, according to Philippians 2, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that text does not suggest that Jesus will only have all authority in that day. He owns this authority today. He is the Lord of all at this moment. And there is no authority that stands above him. Paul put this so well in writing to the church in Ephesus. I'd like to turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 1. As Paul writes to the believers there in the city of Ephesus. And he makes this declaration in a prayer that he gives for the believers there. Beginning in verse 18, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. In other words, God is above all. And God entrusted to his son authority and sovereignty over all. Nothing stands higher above Christ. We as a church often are given to creeds and confessions because it puts the church at declaring things that are not negotiable. These are the truths we believe. For the five young men that are going to be baptized this morning, I would suggest Philippians 1, 18 to 23 is their creed before us this morning. In being baptized before us, as every Christian should declare, I have come under the full authority of Christ, and I willingly surrender to it. I was a rebel before. I was at enmity with God before. But that ended the moment I came to faith in Christ. The moment the mercy and grace of God in his love drew me to himself, I was broken and I surrendered to his authority. Jesus ordained baptism for all believers under this Christological heading, verse 18. All authority has been given to the Son of God in heaven and earth.
Those who have trusted him as Lord and Savior surrender to his authority in their lives, and their baptism demonstrates this confession. It is a confession of surrender. Baptism, secondly, is a demonstration of direction. And we see this in verse 19. It is a demonstration of direction. It is the declaration that I've gone one way in the past. Now in Christ and under his authority, this is where I will go. And Jesus brings this to light when he says, Go therefore, because I have all authority, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. A disciple is a follower. And in this context, a disciple is one who follows after Christ. The apostles, and hence the church to come, to come to, the church to follow, the church that would be under that apostolic ministry, were being commissioned to show believers the way of Christ. Go make disciples. Make of those that have come to faith. People that will follow Christ. It's going to put them on a direction. And this begins as the gospel of salvation is preached before all the nations of the world. It is the words of Jesus here that assure us that the gospel is to be taken to every nation, every people group. Its power is unlimited. It's no longer just for the Jew. It is for all, Jew and Gentile alike. And since only the Spirit of God can cause spiritual rebirth to occur... Only those whom God chose to save could possibly come under this disciple-making work of the church. As God brings salvation to the lost, awakening them to the saving faith of the gospel, the church then is to be in the business of showing these converts what it means to walk in the path of the Savior, to follow Christ. The apostles had been the Lord's disciples for over three years. They had walked with Christ. They had been instructed by Christ. They obeyed Christ. They followed the example of Christ. And in the days ahead, following this ascension and this this great commission given, they would be even more impassioned, more devoted and faithful to follow Christ because of the sending of the Spirit of the living God. The apostles were to teach believers the truths and instructions of the Lord so that they, the believers, would now walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ. And if this was to be the mission of the church, if this was the objective given to the apostles to make disciples and the apostles would teach the church, make disciples, then it is equally required that every believer become a disciple. If that's the mission of the church, then it is the mission that every believer is to put themselves under. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 that anyone who does not have the spirit of Jesus Christ does not belong to Christ. Paul went on to write then in Romans chapter 8, if you're not being led by that spirit, you're not actually sons of God. What this tells these five young men is that they're doing more than making a profession of faith. They're more than just getting wet in this pool. They're declaring before us all, I am going to be a follower of Christ. I may not do it all perfectly, but I will continue to come under this disciple-making ministry 
of the church. Therefore, discipleship is twofold in its process. Believers teaching believers how to walk after Christ and believers being taught by other believers to walk in Christ. The church is given this commission. Make disciples. It is therefore required of every believer, be a disciple. Come under this disciple-making ministry. I turn your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul put it in these words to Pastor Timothy as he was pastoring over the church in Ephesus. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul was one of those apostles, was he not? He had been teaching a young man who was pastoring a church in Ephesus. And Paul is saying, as an apostle, you have heard me teach you about Christ. Now, you go teach others and teach others who will be faithful to teach more yet. This is disciple-making. It's the pattern of disciple-making that is to be observed in the act of baptism. When a sinner comes to faith, They are becoming followers of Christ. They're saying, I put myself on a new direction. I lived for myself before. I pleased myself. I did what I wanted under certain parameters of my parents, of course. But now I've made a decision to follow Christ. I'm trusting in him. This is going to change the direction of their life. The moment they came to faith till the time they're taken up to glory. Young men that are being baptized range from age 11 to 16 today. They should even now be demonstrating a testimony of being discipled by other believers, being discipled by their parents, other family members who are believers, being discipled by the body of Christ, their Sunday school teachers, their Awana leaders, even the pulpit ministry. Because the church is about what? Making disciples. Showing believers how to walk the path of Christ. And if that is the case, at the same time, these young men should be showing those younger than them what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because not only are they being discipled, but now as a believer, they need to be part of that disciple-making ministry. This is part of the Great Commission. Go make disciples. So take note of this, young men. What others must not see in you is a teenager who's rebellious to authority, defiant to your parents. The patterns of your life are not to demonstrate unhealthy appetites for material things or overindulging in entertainments or or dabbling in sinful lusts. Being a follower of Christ must not include picking on those that are younger than you, including your siblings. It cannot include any longer hurtful words that are demeaning to others. We observe from verse 19 that the disciples of Christ are going to be baptized in what? The name of God. They're being baptized, name of Father, Son, and Spirit. When we speak of the name of God himself, it is speaking of the attributes of God, his character, what God does, his practice. And therefore, what's to be represented in the baptism of these men is the very character of Christ in their lives. 
the attributes of God are represented here. And according to Romans chapter 6, and this is one of the passages that those being baptized go through with me. We talk about Romans chapter 6. I want to direct your attention to verse 3 and 4 in Romans chapter 6. But according to Romans 6, baptism is intended to demonstrate our union with Christ. Paul uses the word baptism in this passage, which is a reference to water baptism, but he does not directly mean baptism. He means being immersed fully in Christ. And so he uses the word baptism because when we baptize believers, we fully immerse them in water. They go completely under and they're brought back under again, up again. Why do we do that? Because it shows us that we've been immersed in Christ. Listen to the words of Paul. Romans 6 verse 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ are immersed fully into Christ, united with Christ? We've been baptized into his death. We've been fully immersed into his death. What does that mean? The moment I came to faith in Christ... Like Christ took sin on himself and was buried in the grave, so we too become so united with Christ that the old man of sin is buried. He's dead. The old man dies. It represents Christ taking our sin upon himself and dying and entering the grave. That's why we take the baptized person and we dunk them under. But we don't leave them there, do we? We'd have a problem in the church this morning if we did that. There we go back to Scripture and it says, Therefore, we have been buried with Christ through baptism into his death. In other words, buried with Christ, immersed into his death. He carried my sin. I've now died to sin by faith. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, we've been raised back up with Christ. That's the picture that baptism gives. Our full immersion with Christ, our union with Christ. Paul uses this word baptized to show that believers have been so united with Christ that we've died to the old way of sin and we're raised up in the glory of Christ. We're raised up to walk after Christ. We're raised up as a follower, a disciple of Christ. The old things are done. Everything new has now come. Paul uses that word baptism because it paints such a vivid picture about now a disciple, one who follows Christ, so united with Christ that they've been raised up like Christ was raised out of the grave in glory, in power, in triumph, victorious over sin, death, and judgment. So also the believer dies to the old patterns of sinful living And just as we see in baptism, they're raised up out of the water, demonstrating their union with the resurrected Christ who came out of the tomb in three days. Baptism represents the believer dying to the old sinful patterns, being raised up in unity with Father, Son, and Spirit, walking in newness of life. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, a disciple. Following Jesus, even as a young person, means that your life and behavior reflects well the character of Christ. This is the charge that I'm giving to these five young men, but it's the same charge every believer should own. No matter how old we are, 
whether we're young or old, we're leading those younger than you to follow the Savior as well. I'm not only following Christ, I'm influencing those younger than me follow Christ. And in this sense, baptism is a very mature act by one who is committed to follow Christ, one who is devoted to showing others how to follow Christ. Being baptized today is a demonstration of the direction you're walking in this life and the direction that you're taking others as well. It is a path that Jesus has called you to walk on. Go make disciples. And third, baptism is a demonstration of transformation. Verse 20, you've baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This new direction in life must of necessity be one that is instructed by the Lord himself. It begins with the full authority of Christ. And under that authority, God draws some in salvation to himself. And the church is commissioned to preach the gospel so that the spirit would do that very work on the heart that needs to be done. Repentance and faith. But the church is also commissioned, you make disciples out of them. How do we do that? Teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. That's how we do it. We teach the word of Christ. Baptism is a demonstration of a believer who is being transformed by the commands of Christ, as verse 20 continues. And transformed has the idea of not only receiving instruction, but notice obeying that instruction. Teaching them to what? Observe. In other words, to practice, to live out these things. That word observed means that we are now committing ourselves, we're holding fast to, we're walking in, we're practicing the instructions, the commandments of the Savior. Gospel living then is transformative. And therefore, every one of these five young men as well as every true believer here, must give evidence that they're being transformed by the word of Christ. I think what we're sadly seeing in the Christian community today are those who claim to belong to Christ, yet seem to pick and choose the teachings of Christ that they want to follow, if they follow any of them at all. This has become a rampant problem among churches in our nation And it's a practice of so many who call themselves Christian to select certain things out of the word of God that pleases them to embrace and neglect the rest. They do this under the presumption that certain parts of Christ's teaching are not relevant for today. Other parts may be. And this really stems from a failure to embrace what Jesus said in verse 18. All authority belongs to me. That authority is not for any of us. It's not my authority, it's not your authority, it's Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is teaching the church that true disciples are to be instructed in all that Jesus taught. They are to observe all that instruction as well. And the function of the church then is to teach everything, the full counsel of God's word, teach everything Christ has given to us in his word, and the response of every believer is to observe every one of those commands. Again, that word observe means to hold fast to, to keep the words of Christ. You realize there's more going on here than simply teaching and learning. 
The church is not merely an academic institution where religious instruction is being given. This instruction is given in conjunction with what Jesus previously said. It's about making disciples. This means that if we're to take the commands of Christ and make disciples with them, there must be oversight, there must be accountability within the church. It is what is expected of us. To be baptized in the context of Matthew 28 means that we're not only demonstrating your union with Christ, but you're declaring your union with Christ and its ministry, the church itself. My union with Christ, my union with the church of Christ. And this is entirely consistent with the instruction that the Spirit of Jesus Christ has given to the New Testament church. From the practice of church discipline to the placement and the ministry of overseers in the church. Jesus intends for the Christian community to be a Christian environment where not only is the Word of God taught, but it is being applied to Christian living as well. The spiritual gifts are given for that reason. The instruction to guard the flock, the call to confront sin, and to carry each other's burdens, all of these direct the church to biblical instruction and biblical oversight. And what this means for the church is that we're to be committed to teaching God's word as well as practicing it. We expect something from these young men. And we're going to hold them accountable as a church as we do one another. Baptizing believers then is a demonstration of the church's commitment to instruction and obedience as well as the believer's commitment to learn and obey all that the Lord has taught us. And again, for these five young men, they're being baptized this morning. They're going to be declaring to us more than that that you've just been saved by faith. This is more than just a profession. Baptism is a testament before us all that we are followers or disciples of Christ who learn the whole of God's word and we hold fast to its teaching. In other words, they're declaring to us, I'm not only saved, but I'm making a commitment to walk in the path of Christ, to obey his commands, and to come under the ministry of the church in making that kind of disciple. And fourth, in verse 20, Baptism is also a demonstration of devotion. Jesus said, you're to teach them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This expresses Christ's absolute devotion to his people, his absolute devotion to our growth and our maturity. It's a declaration, as we learned out in our Sunday school class this morning, that Christ will preserve his own. He will hold on to us. And because Christ has a hold of those that he has redeemed, nobody can remove us from his grasp. He's devoted to his church. He's devoted to his people. He will never leave or abandon us. He will be present to empower, nurture, instruct, and grow those who become his disciples. And it should be clear here that Jesus is not just simply talking to the 11 or 12 apostles, but to the church as well, that the apostles would establish and grow. For the apostles, the ministry being described here 
would not involve them to the end of the age, but it would involve the work of the church until the end of the age or until Christ returns because the apostles would eventually pass away and enter into the presence of the Lord. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you until the end of the age in this disciple-making business. I'm still the authority overall, including my church. And I still expect all believers to be taught the commandments of Christ and the expectation that they will obey those or observe those commands. So again, the apostles eventually pass away and are into the presence of the Savior. But preaching the gospel, making and baptizing those who believe, teaching all that Christ commanded is a disciple-making work that has continued to this day. We are still under the apostles' instruction here. What Jesus is telling his redeemed church is that so long as his gospel work continues, he will be there with us. His presence is fulfilled with the coming of the Spirit who illuminates the word of Christ in the hearts of his people. He is present with his people in the written word of truth that he, Christ, empowers to affect our sanctification. His presence is fulfilled as he continues to rule the church from his throne. His providence, his sovereignty, we're still under his presence. It is fulfilled, his presence is fulfilled as he continues to give spiritual gifts to every believer for the ongoing work of sustaining each one of us, nurturing us. Jesus promises his eternal and abiding presence to everyone that he has purchased with his own blood. And this promise should serve as a reminder to each one that enters the waters of baptism. Baptism should be a declaration that my walk of faith with Christ, my learning his word, my obedience to his word is no passing fling. It's not just a moment here today. I will forever be in the hands of Christ because of devotion to us. This then is a sincere decision by these five men being made by those who understand that they have a growing relationship with Christ that began the moment they came to faith and it's going to climax in eternal glory. And if Christ promised to be present eternally with his own people, then the testimonies given today should reflect the same eternal commitment. Christ's devotion to us has implications. Jesus will preserve his own. But one of the doctrines of grace that the reformers gave to us is the perseverance of the saints. And I actually like that word, perseverance in the saints. It is undergirded with the preserving power of Christ, to be sure. But I think what the Puritans intended was to communicate is has implications. We are to persevere because our Savior holds on to us. He doesn't let us go. So you keep walking with Christ. You keep learning his commands. You keep obeying. You keep yourself observing all that Christ has commanded. This is the perseverance of the saints. If that is Christ's devotion to us, that he never abandons us, then our declaration, our profession is, Christ, I will never abandon you either. I'm going to walk with you. But we'll fail at times. But if Christ has an eternal hold on us, we're never going to be lost to him. So we continue to walk with the Savior. These men that are giving testimonies in baptism 
are declaring before us all that I intend to keep walking with the Savior because he has an eternal hold on me. This is not a momentary fling. This is important because too often within the church, a gospel invitation is given. Somebody repeats a prayer after the preacher. Somebody raises a hand, says yes to Jesus. They get baptized. Then they go on to live like the world and often reject Christ. This cannot be the profession that is given this morning in these baptisms. If this is a genuine act of faith, we are declaring to these witnesses, you all this morning, and to Christ the Savior, I know, Jesus, you have an eternal hold on me. I will continue to persevere because you preserve me. You empower me to do so. The emphasis in this passage, I want you to know, as we look at the Great Commission, it's not about making a profession of faith. That's not stated here. It is not stated anywhere that I'm going to raise my hand and say yes to Jesus or pray a prayer after the preacher. It is implied in the text, implied in the text, that the gospel has been preached and expressions of faith and trust in Christ have been placed. But the emphasis that is clearly stated in this text is that of making true disciples who are now verbalizing as they go into the waters of baptism, I'm under the full authority of Christ and I surrender to it. I'm being made a disciple of Christ. I'm following him as a believer. And I'm going to learn everything Christ commands so much as I'm able. And I'm committed to observe and walk in those things with the recognition Christ has so devoted himself to me that I can never be lost to him. And therefore, I'm going to continue to walk with the Savior. That's the emphasis of the Great Commission. And I think in the history of the church in the past, too often we've made the Great Commission about preaching the gospel and saying yes to Jesus. That's implied in the text, to be sure. But this text is about making disciples, those who will follow with Christ, obey his word, and will continue to do so until the end of the age. Right in the middle of this commission, is the order to be baptized under this understanding. Baptism has no part in saving us. It contributes nothing toward our redemption, nothing towards our justification, but it is to be understood that baptism is a declaration by these believers that the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed everything for these five men. You're declaring before these witnesses, guys, And before God, that you have been united with Christ by faith, you've surrendered yourself to his will, and you purpose to walk obediently before him as he holds you fast for eternity. This is a testament of baptism. And it's my charge to you young men, take this seriously. Understand and discern what you're doing here in just a few moments. You've already made a profession of faith. You're about to give testimony of that in the waters of baptism. Clearly understand what now you're doing. And that's just as true for every one of us that are believers this morning. And praise Christ for it. We're never lost to him. Father in heaven, I thank you for these young men that are taking courage this morning and standing before us, sharing their faith in Christ. 
We are grateful for your redeeming graces and mercies and drawing them to yourself, granting them the precious gift of faith, causing them new life to be born again so that they might respond in trusting their Savior. We are grateful for your hand in moving in their lives in this way. But Father, we also thank you that you did not leave any one of us alone to ourselves. You continue to abide with us to the very end. All authority is yours. We're being made followers of Christ. You've given us the word, your commandments, and you've empowered us to observe, to obey those commands. Bless these men now as they give testimony of their faith in Christ. May it be a worship and honor and a glory to you, to your Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.